Hi pedestrians, welcome to Founders University Episode 2 featuring Creel Price, the co-founder of Investable. My name's Chris Wurisenha and I'm a co-founder of Pedestrian.tv. Founders University is a geeky, in-depth chat with some of our favourite Aussie startup legends. But first, a word from our sponsor. We recently ran some research at Pedestrian and we found that one in three of our readers are actively working on a side hustle. If that's you and your side hustle does not have a website, then you need to jump onto squarespace.com now. Whether it's a creative project or a way to make a bit of extra cash, make 2018 the year that you take your side hustle to the next level. And on squarespace.com, with the offer code PTV, you not only get a beautifully designed website, but you also get 10% off. That's 10% off with the offer code PTV. Richard Branson called Creel Price the living, breathing definition of an entrepreneur. Creel is the co-founder of Investable, which connects startups with investors and expertise. He was one of the first investors in Canva, along with over 60 other businesses. Creel also bootstrapped his own company, Blueprint Management, before selling it for $109 million. Stay tuned for a crash course in raising investment and a beginner's guide to elephant polo. Creel, so good to have you here. Welcome to Founders University. Uh, this is cool because we only met for the first time a couple of weeks ago. Sure. Great so, um, yeah, so for the un- uninitiated, um, you're probably most well-known at the moment for Investable. Can you talk us through what Investable is and what it does? Sure. Well, Investable is essentially a scalable angel investor. We've been investing now for nearly 10 years um, into startups, but Investable really professionalised that. How do we actually do a lot more investments um, in a lot more regions um, on a scalable way using our data-based uh, methodology? Awesome. And so you're a successful founder yourself, like probably most notably, um, there's a company you started, Blueprint Management. Um, can you tell us that story? Because you actually bootstrapped that company all the way up to a massive exit. Sure. Well, that's probably the irony that we've become investors in, in that because we started with $5,000 each in capital and up until the time we sold it, we had no more money into the company. Um, not for want of trying. You know, we had quite a lot of uh, attempts at trying to raise capital and it never seemed to match with the valuation we thought the company was worth and what people wanted to put it in. And, and it's a different universe these days, a lot more capital available. Uh, so we were able to exit that in, what, 2008, I think, for $109 million. Uh, we got it up to 1,000 people and there was, you know, quite a few different uh, areas of the business. We had, a, you know, a big core center business, we had a financial advice business, we had a data business. Cool. So for those that aren't familiar with the business, um, can you talk us through what it actually did? Yeah, I mean, everything was structured around the methodology of customer relationship marketing. How, how do you actually start a, start with a customer and how do you upsell and cross-sell them into a, a, a bigger customer? And we worked for you know, 13 of the top financial institutions in the country in order to be able to, because they've got large customer bases, how do we take them from you know maybe 1.2 products per customer up to maybe you know the ideal was seven cust- uh, products per customer. Yeah, cool. So you sort of explained, so was that using kind of like data and call centers and... You know, essentially, yeah, yeah. yeah it, was, it was very much a customer relationship marketing business. We used data in order to be able to profile the right customers to uh, to whether we, we were doing direct mail contact back in those days or we're doing e-marketing or we're doing um, telephone um, sales. It was using data to be able to make sure that we maximise the opportunity that, you know, rather than just this, you know, broad scale marketing that people do, they give the same offer to all the, all the same customers. Amazing. And so... What was the scale of the business like when you kind of sold it? Like, and if you can talk even financial numbers, like I think there'd be so many people that would see that figure, like $109 million and go, 
you know, what does a business need to achieve to be able to like exit at a valuation like that? Sure. Well, I think it just just we're just short of sixty million dollar uh, annual turnover. The uh, the profit was fifteen point five million dollars, I think, when we sold it. So essentially, we were sold on a multiple of profit, like a lot of businesses were. So rough, roughly around the eight uh, x, uh, which which was pretty good for, for those days. I think the same business, you know, what's it been eight years since then, would probably sell it for probably five times as much these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, profit's a pretty rare thing to uh, to come from with a, a very fast growing company. You know, we were consistently in the in the BRW's fast 100, the third fastest, sixth fastest, but then we, you know, once you get over 250 employees, you're sort of disqualified to, uh, to participate. <laughs> but every year we had a very strong growth. Yeah, amazing. And there, there was this phenomenal story that I read about, about how you secured one of your first major clients, which I think was Westpac, and it involved you breaking into the office next door. And can you can you tell us about that? Sure, we know, we finally remember it as the Hollywood set. So essentially, we uh, when we first started, we, we started with such a small amount of capital. We had a really crappy office because we stretched our budget to have a city-based office, but we didn't really have very much decent furniture. We paid a hundred bucks for all of our furniture. At, a, uh, at one of those second-hand options. So uh, so we, we, we all of a sudden got an opportunity to, to pitch to some of the executives at Westpac. So we went down to their office and we did a, you know, must have been a pretty good pitch. And, uh, on, you know, a small company trying to do business with a big company in those days was pretty rare. Um, but, you know, we had a lot of rejections up to that point. But the, anyway, this executive st- stood up and said, look, this is exactly what we need. And uh, which was obviously music to our ears. Um, so we said, that's great. And he goes, the problem is uh, we need to start straight away. And we said, we, we can start whenever you want, of course. And he said, great, we're going to come out and check out your operation tomorrow, which uh, was a bit of a shock because we thought, she's every time we've actually seen someone come into our office, we never heard of them again. So on the way back up, Martin Place, I remember Trevor and I, uh, we had like literally $3,000 left in the bank. We said, you know, this is our last shot at the title. Let's put the full $3,000 in red. And uh, so we hired plants, we hired computer monitors, we couldn't afford the hard drives, we, uh, we hired some of our friends and family to make us look a lot busy, we didn't have any campaigns going at the time, and we hired all this new boardroom furniture. But on the day that, uh, well the next, next morning when all this furniture arrived, someone had the bright, bright idea of uh, breaking into the next door vacant office and putting the boardroom furniture in there to make us look a bit bigger, which is what we did, and must have done another pitch of our lives and uh, we got the business. Yeah, amazing. So, so what are your views on, you, you bootstrapped your first business all the way up to building a $109 million exit and, you know, you're in the investing game now, like helping to kind of raise sort of, you know, angel funds for businesses. Like what's your view on when a, if a company should bootstrap or raise investment? Oh, I think bootstrap is definitely the way to go. Um, if you can get away with no capital, investors, you know, we like to be founder friendly in our methodology. There's so many that aren't, but even, you know, having us as an investor, you know, we've got expectations um, on founders and that's sometimes pressure you don't need. Particularly, we, we're usually the first professional investor in but you know, if you haven't got a product market fit, you know, I really recommend trying not to get in away with investors. You know, if, if you can, um, and certainly if you know if your business builds scale, and you don't ever need investors. That's a better way to go. For sure. And so, can you talk us through some of the highlights from the kind of investable portfolio? Because you've made some phenomenally savvy investments, like you know, like kind of companies that are now almost home, household brands, um, but you know, you guys were like often the first people through the door in terms of kind of funding those businesses. Sure, well, we've, I think it's been 66 investments we've made now over the last, you know, probably only seven years when we sort of formalized things. Um, probably the two of the best investments that are really unicorn businesses now. Um, one is Canva, so a lot of the Aussies would uh, would know Canva. Um, you know, it's, it's just a phenomenal story. We were fortunate to get be the first money in to, uh, to Canva. 
Um, and it's been an amazing growth stage and we can just see that business growing, going from strength to strength. And the other one that um, a lot of people might not have heard of, but it's probably much bigger than Canva, is uh, Ipsy. It was a business out of uh, Silicon Valley that uh, we were very fortunate to uh, to get their first term sheet, and we invested, uh, make up business essentially that um, sells a subscription, um, you know, to, to their customers. They've now got nearly three million customers paying ten dollars a month, um, and all of the product they get for free, and they've got their uh, cost of postage down to seventy five cents anywhere in America. So it's just a phenomenally profitable model. There, you know, we did a, a, the first raise. The, the very next raise was at half a billion dollars. So it was pretty, pretty great to get to that stage. Crazy. And so that was a that's like a beauty box. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. yeah so, cool. so even though it hasn't been revalued since, we think it's probably worth over one and a half billion dollars now. Amazing. So how does how does an Australian, you know, kind of like group of angel investors get involved in the first round of funding for a US-based business? Sure. One of our uh, LPs, she's based out of uh, San Francisco. I lived there for a little bit of time. She's She was uh, one of the first people to, well, she's not one of the first. She was the person who found Skype for uh, Draper Fisher, one of the right. big VC funds over there. So she's been, she's pretty phenomenal at sniffing out some good deals. She went to uh, university with this chap that was starting the uh, Ipsy business. So we were fortunate to get into the ground level through that. Yeah, cool. And so for people out there who have sort of, you know, startups that they're kind of working through that are looking to raise money. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially, I suppose, you know, you kind of largely work with companies at the very early stage, you sure. know, being like um, kind of, you know, having sort of angel-based funding. Like what are you sort of, you know, like what's the first thing that they should do when it comes to approaching investors? Well, I think it's just being honest. Like not, you know, sure, a lot of angel investors are niching on, uh, investing on the pitch um, or the deck, you know. But honestly, that's not our methodology. We don't want to give the best, you know, the most investment to the best orators or the best people that have got the design skills. There's got to be some more depth in that. So it's got to start with the founder team. So if, if you're the first-time founder, I'd really recommend maybe getting a co-founder. Or if you're not from the industry, make sure you do get a co-founder that is from the industry. So we look at the founder team first and foremost, like most angel investors do. And then next up is the business model. You know, we want to make sure if we're getting in at an early stage, we want to see it doesn't necessarily have to justify being a billion dollar business because we're getting in at the, you know, between the one and the six million dollar valuation range. If we can, you know, 5x our money, we're, we're pretty uh, happy with that. So, but it's still in order to go from a five million dollar business to a $25 million business. It's, it's got to be scalable. So that's where the business model, and we, we work a lot with the startups around that business model ideation to make sure it is scalable. Cool. And so you mentioned that you sort of get involved at the one to $6 million valuation. It feels from seeing like a lot of early stage startups that sometimes their valuation is largely kind of plucked out of the air. Um, is that something that you would kind of agree with? Or do you feel like there is some sort of like robustness around how you can kind of value yourself at that early stage? Oh, there's some methodologies. I mean, we've got a thing called the Investability Index that we, we use as 16 different data points uh, that we, we look for in a startup. And, and I guess we can benchmark them in comparison. Are these businesses worth $6 million? No, they're not. But if this company just made a, you know, raised, you know, similar to them that raised at $5 million, they're better. Well, maybe that's for how you can justify a $6 million valuation. So we, we benchmark them between those. But equally, one of the things that you need to think about is, as an early stage investor, you don't want to be taking a big slice of the business. So generally, it's between 10 and ideally 20%, no more. Um, so we want to get in, in the, that range. So if we're, if we're writing a check of half a million dollars, you know, at a, say, a 20, 20%, obviously, you know, that's where we come up um, at, at some kind of, you know, two and a half million dollar valuation. Yeah, cool. Is there any time that it's too soon to go out and try to raise investment? 
Well, it depends on the depth of the founder team. Again, if, if they're pretty sharp, um, they've been from the industry, they've got some traction, they've got some endorsement in their, their board, maybe they've had some what we call friends, families and fools already put some money in and those people are you know pretty well regarded. Um, I think that it makes it easier for, for us and it's ideal if they did have some traction, if they can show they've got some trial customers. And it really depends on whether they're a B2C, B2B or B2E company. You know, So if a, if a B2E, an enterprise sort of play, if they only had one customer, that's okay, right? In a B2C, you want to see a bit more traction than that and B2B somewhere in, in the middle. Cool. And is, is it ever too late to be trying to raise like angel funding? Uh, in the in the entrepreneurial journey, you mean? Yeah, I suppose like, you know, kind of like, is there a point at which you guys will kind of lose interest in kind of the opportunity or, you know, if someone's been going at it for like years and... Oh, not really. I think some of the, you know, the overnight success stories that we read about in the paper have been 10, 15 years in the, uh, in the making. Atlassian is a, great, is a great example of that. So, yeah, we certainly, we, you know, put a lot of attribution in people that have been in market for a long time. Sure, they might have been down a path that hasn't worked, but that's what entrepreneurship is about, is taking, taking that learning and then saying, okay, we now know what's going to really work from here. So I've, I found on the Investable website, there's a kind of like checklist quiz style sort of function sure. um, for kind of like want to be startups that are approaching you guys to do first. Um, can you talk us through that? Is that linked to those 16 data points that you were talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that, that you know, once you get a reputation like we have, we obviously get inundated by uh, inquiries. And our methodology has always been, rather than saying no, we say not yet. Um, because, you know, just because we say no today doesn't mean in six months you might not have the traction or you might have got a new co-founder or the market might have changed. So we use that uh, digital tool, the investability uh, in insights for people to, rather than apply for capital for us, they go through a process to learn about what makes an investable company. Through that process, we get some great data on that company and then we can actually, you know, essentially triage them into one of three things and saying that we're not interested at all or we're really interested, let's have a, a meeting or somewhere in between, which is not quite there. Here's some things to go off and do. Once you've done those things, come back to us. Yeah, interesting. What, what, what are some of the more obscure investments you guys have made? Things that like wouldn't kind of seem obvious at first. Yeah, well, we made one just recently called Concussionometer, which is pretty crazy. It's a uh, essentially a a uh, device that you use to assess concussion. You know, and on face value, you think, okay, well, you know, how big can the market be? But it's actually the the, the business model that they've, they've taken to market is really exciting. They've got patent pending technology around looking in the iris that they can actually assess concussion within uh, ten seconds, rather than what it takes at the moment is you know thirty minutes. Uh, so it's a real game changer for not, not just professional sports that obviously want to get their highly paid pays back on the field, but private schools, other schools that are, you know, all, there's liability for the coaches and the training staff if they don't assess properly. Yeah, interesting. Anything else? Because that, that's such a fascinating business. Like, what, what are some of the other ones? Well, one of the things that I was involved in recently that we haven't invested in this business, but it was actually around uh, amputees. And you think, okay, well, how big a market can be? You know, because no one really owns that space for selling cool stuff to uh, to amputees. But you think, okay, how big can the market be? Well, in America, there's 185,000 new amp- lower limb amputees every year. Jeez, wow. And there's uh, 8,000 new lower limb amputees in Australia every year. So it's actually a really a massively growing market, partly through diabetes. And so he's all, all of a sudden looking to corner something that no one's really looking at um, in, a, in a deep way. So that would be quite an obscure place to, uh, to invest. Yeah, definitely. And um, so is there a kind of, um, what's the kind of realis- realistic expectation on how much money 
people should be kind of asking for in the first round, like some of these early stage companies that are coming through? Oh, again, really horses for courses. Depends on what, how experienced the founder team are, um, what the market opportunity, what traction they've already got. But our minimum check is like two thousand dollars in uh, as a term sheet. So that's you know, and we do that even on a progressive basis. So sometimes it's three checks that makes up that two hundred thousand dollars. So that'd be super early. And then, um, you know, I think if you've never raised money before, you know, 500 would be the top end, probably, unless you've got a lot of traction and got something really, really unique or some kind of technology that no one else has got. Um, and that's for, the, that's for, for the, what we call the early seed round. And then a later seed round is probably, you know, a million, a little bit more, a little bit less. And then Series A tends to be, uh, you know, amounts of, sort of $3 million up to $8 million. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, and is there any kind of common thread that you sort of see running through the successful investments or maybe the founder teams that you kind of work with? Well, certainly the founder teams, yeah. We, um, we put each of our founders through a psychometric uh, assessment called Fingerprint for Success. We were fortunate to be the first investor into that tool and we've helped co-develop it. Um, and it really sorts out not only who is more likely to achieve success as an entrepreneur, but it really identifies the chemistry between the founders. Um, and, and one of the, the things that I think is really important is you're more likely to get traction with a founder team, but equally, there's real danger for a massive founder breakup um, that that could really injure our investment. So we, we, we put everyone through that, that tool. And, and things that come out of that tool, for instance, is you want people that are high on initiation. You don't want people that are navel-gazing for too long. They think, okay, there's an opportunity here. I'm just going to test something. You know, the whole minimum viable product sort of thing. Yeah. There's a focus on money, you know, and financials that they really understand that what's going to take it to be successful rather than just thinking they've got a great idea. Execution is a big thing. And I think not enough companies around the world, uh, when they're assessing startups, are assessing the, uh, the execution uh, of the team and how it's going to be feasible. They look at mainly the value proposition or the you know, desirability of the product. They think this is going to be amazing. But if you can't um, execute, you're going to go nowhere. A lot of money gets waste, wasted on uh, companies that would never have been able to ex- execute. Yeah. How important um, for you are kind of financial forecasts? Because of early stage businesses, often it's it feels very kind of, you know, finger in the air, just having a crack and it's a lot of upside, not much downside. Sure. Um, you know, how, how, what sort of rigor do you put those financial forecasts through or is it really more about the idea in the market that they're going after? Yeah, no, we've got, we've got a pretty comprehensive process around the business model. So there's 40 areas that we look at, um, you know, a number of those areas around financials. Every startup that ever comes to us has a massive hockey stick increase. You'd expect that. Do we think they're going to achieve that? No, we don't. Um, but it's more around the methodology around that and do they understand the numbers? So we'll be drilling them on, okay, well, how have you come up with this assumption? Have you validated this assumption? Uh, you know, why would you think that you can go from a, a team of 10 to a team of 200 uh, within the space of two months? You know, no one's ever been able to achieve that very, you know, we're one of the fastest growing companies, but, you know, you can't, you can't you know, do that increase in revenue or increase in staff too, too quickly, otherwise things fall apart. So, yeah, so it's more of that methodology rather than th- believing that the financials are actually going to be true. We want to just make sure that they've actually done some validation around what's possible. Sure thing. And are there any kind of like fairly consistent metrics across um, startups that people should really be like aware of, like when they are talking to investors and trying to raise money? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the bugbears is people standing up saying that, oh, that we've got no competitors. Well, for instance, if you had no competitors, we're probably not interested because if there's not a market in already, trying to create a market is very, very difficult. You need a lot of very deep pockets. So again, we're not going to be able to give you the tens of millions of dollars you need to create a market. So therefore, we want you to disrupt an existing market. How do you be better, faster, you know, more premium, um, and um, you know, 
how do you how do you work on the customer needs in an existing market compared to your competitors? So don't go in there and say I've got no competitors. Even if you can't see natural ones or obvious ones that are exactly the same, there's always other competitors that could play in that space. And one of the vital things that should be in a pitch deck, like is a pitch deck important? You know, kind of like sort of some sort of document presentation. Um, and if it is important, then what, what should be in it? Sure. Well, the pitch and the pitch deck go together. So the reason why I think they're important is not because you should be getting paid uh, the, your investment off the back of a pitch or a pitch deck. It's just it enables you to really concisely come up with what is your business about and what are the key areas that you need to cover with an investor. It's pretty typical things in there. Your market positioning compared to your competitor, the traction you've already got, the team, your advisors, you know, a little snapshot around the uh, the financials, but really going deep around the problem. Why is this a problem? How big is the market opportunity? Um, and if you were successful at, at uh, creating, um, you know, your, your product to, to disrupt that market, how big can it be for you? Because you're not going to get the whole market. Cool. And... This one I find personally quite interesting because I think in the startup world, there's a lot of people who, you know, there's a, there's a lot of talk of like val- values and vision and kind of, you know, what people are trying to achieve and that they're building a company that's, you know, here for like the next 50 years. But, you know, all of their investors ultimately want some opportunity, I imagine, to make their funds more liquid, um, you know, at some point, whether that's through like listing on the stock exchange or like a company coming in and buying it out. How... Um, honest and upfront should the founders be on like kind of what their sort of exit strategy is and is that something that you guys look at in a lot of detail well the rule of thumb is I think always be honest uh, investors will pick you know it's a people game so we, we see so many pictures we know when someone's not being honest or if they're telling us something you know a lot of data plays at the moment people say oh it's, a, it's really it's a data but they don't know anything about data so yeah. you know be honest you say we think this could be a data play but clearly we'd need to get a data scientist in to help us actually Work, work this out, right? Sim- similar thing to what you're talking about with the exit and saying, look, we don't really know exactly what the exit would be, but we'd think that in five or six years, we think, you know, someone like Google or Facebook may be interested in this space because of these reasons. Uh, you know, having some kind of mention the word exit, I think is, is pretty important. If you think that you want to be with the business for the next 50 years, investment might not be the right thing for you anyway. Investors are going to be putting pressure on you to get an exit within seven to 10 years. So if you want investment, uh, make sure there is some kind of exit horizon. Yeah, cool. And what have been some of the kind of game-changing moments for you, like potentially sort of going back to Blueprint, you know, kind of, um, or even, you know, through the Investable story, like game-changing moments that really sort of changed the course of your business? Yeah, well, I think it's the, the whole replication thing. The reason why Blueprint was able to grow so rapidly um, was getting, understanding what you're good at and being able to replicate that in a very systemized way and, and, and particularly around what we call around a magic metric. You know, if, if you're a real estate agent, they all focus on the number of listings is their magic metric. It's not number of sales. Number of sales is the end result. Their magic metric is more listings they get, uh, the more successful their company's going to be. You know, airplanes is all about, okay, the percentage of people that are booking business class seats or a hotel is percentage of occupancy. Find out what your magic metric is and then do everything in the company to be able to make sure that that magic metric is improving month on month. And if you can ensure that your staff understand what the magic metric is, that's why in hotels, you know, even the cleaner knows if occupancy is 60%, they might not get paid in a few months, right? But if it's 90%, everyone's pretty happy. So I think you want to simplify the focus rather than having too many things and don't focus on profit. Profit is the end result of something uh, more, more um, you know, customer friendly. Yeah, cool. And uh, we, we had a bit of a chat about how, like, there's a lot of focus in schools at the moment about sort of teaching coding skills, um, but that potentially 
that was kind of a little bit overrated. Can you mm-hmm. talk us through your views points on that? Well, everyone's seeing the Mark Zuckerberg factor, thinking, oh, you know, he's a, he was a coder and started this, you know, multi-billion dollar business. And I think that's great. But there's a lot of wannabe entrepreneurs that, that are, that are, you know, I think sold the dream and don't realise how hard it is and the skills you actually need. So I was pretty fortunate at a young age to get some entrepreneurial skills. Um, you know, I, I love computers. I did a bit of coding when I was a kid and stuff, but certainly that was never going to be a career. And even as an entrepreneur, you can outsource that stuff. So... My advice to people that are b- believing the propaganda that, um, that coding is going to be the, the skills of the future is, first of all, that unfortunately the uh, machines are going to be doing most of the coding. We're, we're an investor in a, in a company that's actually created an algorithm to allow machines to do like 90% of a coding of a, of a new website. Yeah, well. So that's only going to increase with the amount that machine learning is happening these days. Secondly, even if it was coding, it's really a blue-collar job for a lot of people. Sure, there's a 2% of amazing coders that isn't, but the rest, it's really grunt work that's pretty replicable over and over and over again. I don't think you want your kids growing up to be the next blue-collar workers. Um, and thirdly, there's such a tiny percentage of the population that are going to be good at that, right? My, my son is one of them. He's six years of age. He's, he's done code camp. He's, he's at the tech club in school. He's, he's wired that way. But still, I really wouldn't want him to be a coder in the future, even though he is one of those people, because I don't think it is going to be the difference between, um, you know, how you're going to be successful or creative or have a, have a career you're really going to love. Entrepreneurship is, is one of those skills. So rather than thinking that 70% of our future kids are going to be coders in the future, 70% will be entrepreneurs. So let's train them in that. Yeah, cool. And so you've actually launched a program at schools to kind of help train young children in kind of the entrepreneurship skills that they need. Can you talk us through that? Sure. So back in 2009, so we're probably a little bit too early, to be honest, um, when no one was wondering why we why, why do we care about entrepreneurship you know but these days fast forward nearly 10 years it's entrepreneurship's the new black but even so the education system is really anti-entrepreneur to bring out the entrepreneur within I think it's very difficult as a kid and I, I've experienced that at school myself to how do you concentrate in class how do you do this very regimented thing that's anti-entrepreneurial so we've got a program called uh, Club Kidpreneur the, the Kidpreneur Challenge which has been in 700 schools around Australia and essentially, it's all about over the course of a term, teaching the kids to come up with why they want to be in business. You know, how do they raise money for a charity of their choice or they want to buy something um, or give it to the school PNC? Uh, what business might make sense? What's their logo? What's their name? What's their product? Come up with a prototype, test it with the customers, go back, create a production line, and then they sell it at a suburban market. And then we go through the financials around how do they make profit and how do they borrow some money from their parents and then pay that back. So it's a pretty amazing program. And seeing, I think there's been 14,000 kids that have created a micro business through that uh, program over the last five or six years. And uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty awesome. And but more than anything, it's the skills that the kids get. You know, sure they learn about entrepreneurship, but it's the soft skills of resilience and drive and initiative and imagination that you know pretty it's pretty hard to come by in other subjects. Yeah, cool. Any unicorns yet? Out of the program? No, no, new, no unicorns. But there's been some pretty pretty interesting. You know, obviously we start at the ages of eight to, to twelve, so we've got to <laughs> yeah. wait a long time before you get the next Mark Zuckerberg potentially. But you know, one of our you know she did the very first program, Poppy Olson. She, you might have heard of her. She's, she's a skateboarder now, world champion oh, skateboarder. Yeah. But in order to help pay for her skateboarding, she created a little uh, card company. She, she made her own designs, sold these greeting cards, and now she, she makes about $10,000 a year that pays for her to go to the world championships in San Diego every year just through that uh, little micro business. Cool. That's phenomenal. Um, so, so just going back to the tech question, so how important for you as an investor is having a tech founder in a business? 
Yeah, I mean, yes and no. It's, it's certainly beneficial if you've got the right tech co-founder, but oftentimes, you know, you might be better to outsource that if you can't find someone with the real deep skills, the passion for the same problem that you're trying to, uh, to fix as well. Um, equally, our business is not just about investing into tech businesses. We're more tech-enabled. Something that you're really passionate about this is this idea of an entrepreneurs. You got it. The reason why I retired really was to, to, to start this movement, the entrepreneurs, which today feels a bit silly because we were in the entrepreneurs. 70% of university graduates believe they'll be starting a business in the next uh, five years. Uh, every university, every corporation, every government's talking about how do we inspire more entre- entrepreneurs. So the entrepreneurs is all about how do we get more entrepreneurs into business, more entrepreneurs successful at business, and more entrepreneurs using business with social values, which was very important to me. Stay tuned after the break for what happened when Creel met Richard Branson and find out about that one time he captained Australia at the World Elephant Polo Championships. It's crazy the amount of people who come up to me with an idea for a startup but who don't know where to start. If that sounds like you, then squarespace.com is the answer. Whether it's a business, showcasing your creative work, or even just showing off yourself, on Squarespace, you can buy a domain, set up a website with no technical skills required. And with the offer code PTV, you get 10% off your next purchase. That's PTV at squarespace.com to get 10% off. What's your sort of advice on kind of Australian businesses looking at the kind of global landscape? Like, do people need to... Do you need to move to San Francisco or to kind of, you know, to a bigger market to kind of make that work or can you do it from Australia? Yeah, I think there's certainly plenty of examples of where you can do it from Australia, but equally, sometimes it does make sense to move to the Valley. If you've got a very tech-oriented business and you need large amounts of capital, that could be the right move. Equally, you know, sometimes we look at a very linear, it's either Sydney or San Francisco and that doesn't really make sense. There's so many other parts of the world that aren't as crowded. Um, from an investment point of view, like Silicon Valley, super, you know, you're going to be a very small fish in a very big pond. Uh, We're doing a lot more work in Asia these days and there's a lot of opportunities uh, for the right startups to get not only incentives but get funding in those markets and be right in the middle of a population growth and, um, and, and increasing GDP that we don't have in this country. Yeah, so you mentioned Asia. Investable's like, you know, kind of in the process now of actually, I guess, expanding the sort of the, the membership of the fund into Asia and looking at Asian businesses to invest in. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's involved in that for you and kind of like, I guess, what drove that strategy? Sure. Well, our investment methodology is all around how do you source the best deals, screen them, secure them, support the startups um, in order to be able to go to exit. So those four main areas. To, 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 to do that, we've obviously got to be very good at what we do to source and have a good brand. So what we're in uh, market in Southeast Asia at the moment, we've got representatives in Thailand, Malaysia and, the, uh, and in Singapore. Um, loose connection in uh, China. We, we run a competition with the Beijing government there every year. Um, but for us, it's about sourcing the best deals, and then we put them through our investability uh, process in order to be able to hopefully screen ones that are investable right at the moment. Um, and then we're, we're, we'll be starting some investments uh, later on in this year. Cool. And so when you when you Google Creel Price, like quite a lot comes up about um, a relationship that you've got with Richard Branson um, and some of the kind of work that you've done that sort of crosses over with that. Um, can you talk about how you first met Richard and how you know, that's kind of evolved over the years. Sure. Well, after I'd retired from business as part of this entrepreneurship, one of the things was how do you use business for social good? And so I was fairly early in the movement of, uh, of, of creating social enterprise. 
And one of the first social enterprises I was involved in was um, was a guy that had worked with me before. He'd gone back to the UK. He'd started a business, uh, a social enterprise called One Water, um, which essentially we sell a bottle of water. 100% of the, the profit goes to water pa- charities in Africa. And so he asked me to uh, help launch that in Australia, which I did. We, uh, I think that One Water now globally has given over $20 million to water charities in Africa, uh, which is pretty phenomenal, improves the model, I guess. Um, and we're, we're the first charity water here in Australia. There's some more, much more successful ones, unfortunately, since since we, we launched in, what, 2008. Um, Always too early, Chris. Yeah, yeah, a little bit too early, yeah. So, <laughs> well, that's one well, interesting, back to the point around what makes a successful startup. They reckon timing is at least 40% of uh, getting it right. So I think, you know, I've had a few disasters in relation to being too early or too late. But uh, back to your point around Richard Branson. So Richard found out about One Water and, and obviously he's, he's pretty socially minded and he saw, like I've seen, is charity's not the answer. You know, every January, the charity sticking their hand out and saying, I just need more money, I need more money. A lot of it goes to overheads and management and you know ridiculous amounts of costs whereas social enterprises is is really self-sustaining you sell a product and, and generates profit and you can do something with it so he invited uh, the CEO of One Water over to uh, to Necker Island um, and a group of 20 other uh, social entrepreneurs from around the world to discuss the future of philanthropy I was very uh, fortunate that uh, Duncan unfortunately was having a baby that week or his wife was so I got to go in his place and met, you know, obviously one of the iconic entrepreneurs. Um, and I'd, he'd, he'd actually inspired me to get into business in the first place when I'd read his book, Losing My Virginity. So it was a bit of a, uh, it was a bit of an interesting thing. And I thought, honestly, that Richard would be a bit of a blow-in, blow-out. It was his, his first real connection trip. Um, but he was there from six o'clock in the morning at Pilates right to the bar at the midnight, by the end of the night. So over five days, you get to know the guy pretty well. And, and we shared, a, a, you know, a thing about a passion for Africa. Um, and for using training rather than mentoring, because um, he'd he'd started an initiative in uh, in Johannesburg, which was the Branson Centre for Entrepreneurship, um, and they wanted to move towards a more of a curriculum-based model. And I was fortunate that Richard asked me to get involved and see if I could use some of my curriculum to make that happen. So the last eight years, been back and forth to Africa many times to uh, to make sure that that, uh, that process has been put in place. Yeah, nice. Uh, what are some of the outcomes from that program? Well, one of the things I get involved in these days is the, is the graduate class goes to uh, a thing I designed, uh, a, a boot camp. You know, a lot of people talk about boot camps these days, but essentially it's a it's a training program in some hotels, uh, you know, ballroom. But the, uh, my boot camp is very much hands-on. It's two and a half hours north of Johannesburg where we designed it in a game park up there. They do climb a mountain to learn the stages of business. They do a master chef competition to learn that really a recipe is the same thing as a business model. They do orienteering through wildebeests and zebras to actually understand how to prioritise and plan. And we took those, partly because a lot of the uh, the entrepreneurs that were attending the Branson Centre at that stage, they were growing up in South, uh, apartheid South Africa, hadn't got a formal education, so you literally couldn't teach them business in a classroom. But what I realised is, Real entrepreneurs are very tactile people. They're not very good at sitting in a classroom either. And the metaphors that, that these things really landed the lesson as far as the recall of information, because you, you get a training course, two days later you can't even remember what you learned. Whereas the great thing about using these things that are very tactile, it, it, the long-term recall is pretty amazing. So we've now brought the boot camp out here to Australia and we, we run these a couple of times a year with some founders. Um, and it's, it's just a pretty pretty cool uh, process, but back to your question around what entrepreneur, you know, amazing entrepreneurs that are you know doing gaming uh, parlors in uh, in shipping containers in Soweto, or they've got uh, shower systems. You know, recognise a lot of people don't have a bathroom at home, so they put them at the bus stop. You can have a shower at the bus stop and then go to and have your professional job. You know, some really amazing. You know, there was one, one that was a uh, a witch doctor online uh, supply. Uh, <laughs> you know, you think gee, you wouldn't have thought that yeah, was, yeah. there's a need for that, but you know, there's a lot of witch doctors in South Africa. 
that's that's so cool. Um, so so where do you go to for inspiration? Like, what do you watch, listen, read? Like, you know, do you have time to like watch, listen, or read anything? Or well, yes, no. I mean, I do. I was very in building my business. I was such a huge proponent of reading reading a book and trying to put those lessons into place. Blueprint. You know, honestly, that most of the success was we tried so many different experiments to see if it'd work. Nine out of 10 of them don't, uh, but the one that does really builds your business. So I really recommend to people that they do read. Um, unfortunately, I'm a do as I say, not as I do these days. Uh, you know, you get so full of information that it is very hard to actually read that same sort of stuff. If I was your customer, you'd probably be out of business at pedestrian these days. So <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a, a really avid uh, listener of media, um, but I go for inspiration to the bush. I, I really, I grew up in the country. Um, you know, if my meditation is doing a hike up some mountain somewhere, and I sometimes take entrepreneurs with me to do that, which is a bit of a buzz. Yeah, cool. And um, and so you, you, you've done something that like not many people have got to do, which is you got to retire in your mid thirties. Like, can you talk us through what it's like to retire when you're thirty five? I think it was. Yeah, thirty five. Uh, well, there's goods and bads. I mean, obviously, you know. We'd earned the retirement. We'd had 10 years in business by that stage. So, you know, it was a pretty long journey. Um, and then you, you retire, you pick up a big check. Um, I sort of went a bit weird as far as spending money. So I, I um, you know, ended up collecting stuff off the street. And I just, I just wanted to be very anti-consumerism because people assumed that I was going to retire with all this cash and start buying big boats and big houses and stuff. But I actually flipped it. I, I said, okay, how do I, I want to be a role model for other people that haven't necessarily got the wealth to say it's, it's not the money that you actually have that makes you it's actually your contribution um so that, that was sort of an, a, a bit of an interesting 12 months and then the the other thing <laughs> so that I found, what did you pick up off the street well you know if i, I, I other than my bed i had a, had a bed but you know bookcases and desks my you know desk was just a, a bit of slab on some old um uh, one of those easel things that you, uh, you you saw things and you know I had uh, like a swing on my seat that I picked up on the side of the street that I painted up and you know just trying to re- you know recycle stuff and then I um, started to, to play golf with my 70 year old chairman and his cronies and I had, a, had this real because all my mates obviously at work uh, they couldn't you know midweek and I don't play on weekends because it's just too busy and I, I had this aha moment where I thought, you know, what am I doing? I can't, I can't do this for the rest of my life. And I, I met a, a guy called Bill James. I don't know if you've come across Bill. No, I haven't. He was one of the co-founders of uh, Flight Center. Okay. And um, he wrote one of the best entrepreneurial books of all time. Most in, in that you know era, we're all out of America and saw so how good are we? Whereas Bill's book was all about, gee, we were dodgy bastards when we, uh, when we, when we <laughs> built Flight Center. It's just a really amazing. So it's called On the Frog and Toad. Anyone want to get a copy of that? Really amazing book. But finally, um, my, my wife uh, at a charity auction won a lunch with, uh, with Bill, which I went along and had a, and he said, yeah, it's pretty hard to, you know, your identity, you know, the longer you are out of the sale of your business. And by that stage, he was probably 15 years out of having listed his business. You lose your identity. And that was, for me, was the, well, I need, to, I need to get back into business because, you know, so much of a part of me is wired for entrepreneurship and that's why we're back in we're here with Investable. Yeah, I've gone back with uh, Trevor, my original business partner. Yeah, cool. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Have you got any tips for people like picking business partners? Like, obviously, you love your business partner if you've gone back into business with them. Um, what, what should people be looking for? Like, because you hear a lot about complementary skills or like, you know, kind of, is, is that the magic or is there something else? Well, it's got to be values, first of all. You know, everything should be values. Um, so, you know, there's ways to, to discover your joint values to find out whether, whether you've got that right. Next is vision, making sure that, you know, I might want to sell out in two years, you might want to do it in 20 years. So there's going to be mismatch. So let's sort that out early on. 
and then there's um, complementary mixes of skills. Like Trevor's, for instance, very good at relationships and um, you know doing the time with to build those relationships. Whereas I'm very more of the data, the system, uh, the financials side of things. So you want to make sure that there is differences of the skills that you you bring. But equally, there's uh, you know, we, we, we nearly second guess each other a lot of stuff these days because we think in a certain way uh, because we've come from the direct marketing background, uh, which really, really works now in the digital age is, okay, let's not spend huge amounts of money on advertising. Let's do it, you know, in, in this test uh, way. Let's test it and then we can roll it out in a, in a bigger way. So having, having some joint background is, 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 is pretty handy. Uh, other, other tips I would give is you know definitely do the fingerprint for success tool partly because you can actually see the complementary skills and the clash, potential clashing skills that you've actually got through that tool so before you jump into bed with someone if you've got the opportunity to do that I'd recommend it and then you know you want to do a bit of due diligence on your uh, on your business partner so do do something together before you jump into a business for the next five to ten years you know is it a is it a startup weekend together or is it you know one of the things that we talk about investable and what we do in boot camps is if you can't share a tent together you shouldn't be in business together so we throw all of the founder teams into a tent and by the end of the uh, the week if they can still talk to each other we think okay they've got a pretty good partnership yeah cool and just lastly how did you end up as the captain of the Australian elephant polo team Right, sure. representing Australia at the World Championships of Elephant Polo. Correct, yeah. Well, I actually went to the World Championships of Polo this weekend. No, I didn't play, but it was quite, it was my first real polo experience other than the elephant polo. But the uh, the chap that uh, that I talked to you before about that, uh, that had co-founded the uh, One Water, him and I, we, we commit to do an adventure every year. Um, and, and, and one year, you know, Paul had this suggestion saying, why don't we put a submission in for the World Elephant Polo, which we did, and we got refused. And then, because uh, there's, there's only eight teams allowed, you know, you know, we weren't sort of the part of the set. And then we got a call two weeks before the event saying, oh, we've had to move the um, the elephant polo because the Mount Terrace had taken over Nepal and they had to move it 400 kilometres and they wanted another uh, two teams. So we put an Aussie team in <laughs> and, um, you know, that's sort of one thing led to another, but it was a pretty wild experience. So had you ever played before? Never played, never been on an elephant before, never played polo before, so we were the only team without any polo players or any elephant polo players. So we didn't take out the title. Nepal, it's, a, it's the national sport in uh, in Nepal. Is so um, they, they, them and Thailand, they're pretty amazing. But we, we did, did Australia fairly proud. We mid, 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 mid-level. But one of the founders of elephant polo was a, a chap um, from England, and he, he was representing England. And um, he, he wasn't all that nice to our one of our team members. So we said, we don't care what we do as long as we knocked England out, which we did. So we're pretty oh, happy with that. Well done. <laughs> it's, it's the ashes all over exactly. again. Exactly. Um, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming in, Creel. That was a brilliant chat. Thank you for being generous with your time. And um, if people want to find you or kind of like follow you, where should they kind of reach out? Sure. You can follow me on LinkedIn um, or creelprice.com uh, is, is a website you can check out. Too easy. Nice one. Thanks again, Creel. Really appreciate it. Cheers, man. That's it for another episode of Founders University. This episode was brought to you by Squarespace. Hop onto squarespace.com now, buy a domain, and set up a website with one of their beautifully designed templates. Don't forget to use the offer code PTV to get 10% off. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate us five stars, and forward a link to a friend. Stay tuned for another episode of Founders University coming to your headphones and speakers in a fortnight.